0: Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. This is your host, one and the same, where we try to look at the Bible in context and apply it to our lives. You're enjoying our new program features where we have three different podcasts now. We have Ask Dr. E., where you can come and ask any question you want. I may or may not answer it, but you can try. <laughs> and then we have the sermons, and then we have this broadcast here, where I have the pleasure of interviewing some of the top minds in the country, even across the pond. We've had some guests from overseas. And we're starting a new series, and this broadcast is called Biblical Manhood in a Man-Hating World. And I even had to get Hans' permission to say that, but It is a man-hating world. Our first guest today is Stephen Mansfield. We've been friends now. How long have we been friends?
1: Oh, it seems like 15 years. Is
0: that long? I think so. I was going to say north of 10. Stephen has been a pastor. He is a prolific author. We'll have a bunch of information about him in the show notes. But, you know, probably the first introduction I really had to you was your book, God and Guinness. Ah. And our friend Dave Ramsey gave me that book. uh, I think the year it came out. What year did it come out? 08. 08. Uh Uh-huh. And I think I read that thing without putting it down, and I was blown away, Stephen. Oh, I'm glad. It's a marvelous book for people that have no—they don't drink beer, they don't know what Guinness is, they think it's wrong. Why is this such a cool story, God and Guinness? Well, first of all, just the fight I pick in the title, (laughs) that there's a connection between
1: God and Guinness. Did you get a little feedback? (laughs) I did. I did. And then, of course, I admit in the introduction that I don't drink beer. I do drink alcohol. I don't drink beer. And then I think they got excited when I talked about the benevolence. That's the main focus of the book, is this beer company gets impacted by Wesley and changes Ireland, for sure, and other nations as well. So the whole thing is just a shock to people. It's a ripping good yarn that they enjoyed.
0: It is ripping. I love the, what was it? To drink a Guinness was to drink to the glory of God.
1: Yes. Think about that. I know. Goodness
0: gracious. I know. uh, I was blown away by, I did not understand the context in which they came in because people were dying from this rock gut gin they were making.
1: Yeah, it's so funny given what some people have as a perspective on alcohol today within yes. the church. Back then, if you were brewing beer, you were doing God's work because there had been a gin craze. People were dying, crime was on the rise, families were falling apart, et cetera, et cetera, because there was such a high drunkenness. An archbishop said at the time that gin made with the British people what they never had been before, cruel and inhuman, and it was horrible. So that's why, by the way, when you see advertising For beer companies and brewers and what have you, often they're nuns and monks and priests, because those were the ones trying to do social good, and that's the vein Arthur Guinness would have been in. And so, as he's starting a brewing company in 1759 on the Liffey River in Dublin, he's thinking he's doing social good. Yeah, he's doing business, right? But he also wants to change society, and And he he did. He, oh, he certainly did. He He certainly did. Gosh,
0: I I remember reading your, your section about the nutritional value of a beer vis-a-vis gin and what they were putting into it to make it a hearty meal almost for people that were impoverished.
1: Guinness was actually prescribed on the Irish National Health Program for Pregnant Women until the 1930s. And the only reason they stopped is other brewers said, hey, you can't just (laughs) do it with Guinness. That's illegal. So anyway.
0: Well, we're not here to talk about that, but boy, if that's not a setup for you to go buy that book, I don't know what is. So anyway, so you've written a book on manhood. Before we jump into your text and some just questions I have. Leon Podols wrote a book many years ago on the feminization of the church. And Podols is a Catholic. And he was basically arguing that watching more and more women take more and more leadership in the church was not a good thing. So you and I both, we may have different opinions on egalitarian vis-a-vis complementary. Mm-hmm. but you and I have lived long enough to see the church change tectonically From male leadership to more and more women involved. And we could talk about whether they should or shouldn't be in certain roles. But this has been going on for at least 30 years. Oh, yeah
1: even before that. There's a book I really admire in addition to that one. It's by Anne Douglas, who's at Columbia University to this day. She's older. She was the first English professor, female English professor at Princeton, believe it or not, before that. She wrote a book called The Feminization of American Culture. And She says in the late 1800s, as theological liberalism set into the church, you began to have a sentimental view of Christianity. And liberal clergymen combined with women, she's very careful not to trash women, of course, but combined with with certain types of leading wealthy women and sentimentalized our society and denuded men, her word, not mine, and that that's really when the decline began. So yeah, whenever we start talking about when did this begin, it's always fun, isn't it? Because in a sense, you and I as historians can say, every time a civilization is in decline, manhood goes away, gets erased, gets feminized. But you're certainly right that what we're dealing with now is in the last 30, 40 years.
0: I remember early on in the complementarian egalitarian debate, and by the way, complementarian is equal value, distinct role, egalitarian, equal value, equal role. And we'll have information as this series unfolds on both those sides of the debate, if you will. But one thing I found striking was the way we can piecemeal theology, our text, we can take verses out of the Bible and say that only applied at that time. My favorite one is they say, well, Deborah was a judge. And they make a big point about Deborah being a judge. And I go, well, if you read the book carefully, it was the lowest point of the judge's cycle. And she even upbraids Barack saying, if I go, a woman will be attributed to this victory, not you. Yeah. And he says, well, if you don't go, I might go And then there's a double entendre there because it's not only her, it's a woman who kills Cicera, right? It wasn't him or a warrior who did what a man should have done in that context. And yet we choose to say, well, see, that's a good thing.
1: Yeah. It was actually an act of judgment. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well,
0: so let's start us off here. First of all, give me Stephen Mansfield clarification on genders and roles and identity, male and female. He created them. Part of my problem in life is
1: I'm usually between two polarities. I'm usually a moderate. I can help you. Uh, I bet you can. I bet you can. <laughs> and it's not because I, you know, you know, the old statement that the only thing in the middle of the road is, you know, dead skunks and yellow lines. It's not because I'm a coward or a skunk. Uh, it's because I tend to see a little bit more gray area. In the New Testament, for example, by the way, I'm not an egalitarian, but I'm maybe between egalitarian and complementarian because in the New Testament, you have uh, women on Paul's ministry teams. You have female prophetesses. You have women who can have spiritual gifts that have an influence yes. in the church. And by the way, they weren't emailing their prophecies in. They're standing up in church and they're giving prophetic words. Obviously, Philip's daughters labeled as prophetesses. So... I do believe that male headship—a term that's making people throw up right now—I'm sure—as I use it—is to be valued. I believe in that. You know my wife; very strong personality, but no. And I'm a fool not to take her uh, wisdom and her gifts. And and you know, she actually runs the money in our family. Something that would make a lot of Christians. uh, Well, Cindy uh, does our too. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd be in. She's got degrees in higher math. Why, Why would I do it? But she defers. Finally to decisions, although we practice agreements. So it's again, it's a marriage that might make some people uncomfortable. Translating that into the church, I do believe that women can have roles in the church. I believe they can teach. We obviously, we talk about women not teaching men, but it happens in almost every church in the world. So I'm a bit between those two views well, when it comes to the church. Let's
0: differentiate a little bit, because you mentioned headship and submission, and I've been on a, a bit of a rant for 30 years now that the Bible does not say headship is a, a role you're or right. submission is a role. Right. In fact, submission is a response to authority, not a role. Right. You're exactly now, right. Now, there's certainly churches that have been egregious in a overbearing male dominant only. I mean, I had a friend in my Men program who was in a church where the women sat on one side, the men on the other, yeah. and he even taught the women's Bible studies. Mm -hmm. And women could not speak in his church. Yeah, I think that's extreme. A a little bit. And on the other hand, you have people that say, well, a woman can do anything. And where we've differentiated is the gifting of, as you mentioned, prophetess, and I would even argue pastor-teacher, is not a male-selective gift. Yes. But the office of the elder, presbyteros and episcopos were precisely men in the New Testament. Now, you can go forward with that in different ways, and I'm not here to pick a fight on that particularly but I'm more interested, Stephen, when the church, you mentioned the liberal movement, the liberal churches always seem to, was it Carl Henry who said, why did the liberals always get the buildings and the seminaries? Yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> they got better lawyers. <laughs> long suffering, I don't know, they, yeah. they don't quit. But there's a characterization of complementarian and men hating Yes, that we would do well to talk a little bit about. We have to acknowledge, yes, there have been abuses. Oh, without question. But that's not the whole thing. That's not evangelicalism broad stroke, which we're now seeing redefined. Yes, yes. Don't call yourself an evangelical.
1: No, no, I I actually had to use the word only because a good communicator wants to use words his audience understands. And evangelical now means Trump follower or neo-Nazi or whatever. So why should I use that word? I know it, it's from evangelion and means good news, but I don't know that Joe down the street does. So you know, it's it's like breaking or Joe break, in
0: the church. Yes, yeah.
1: exactly. Or less, it's like breaking into German when speaking to him. I, why, right. why would I do that? I want to communicate with him. So I'm cautious about that. Yeah, I think you and I are pretty much in the same place. I very much value ultimate. Male leadership, call it what you will, again, the Presbyterian idea that it's a male word. But I believe that women have roles in the church, senior roles. Some of the best missionaries I know are women. Some of the best teachers I know are women.
0: Well, and I, I find too that, you know, like a Nancy Lee DeMoss, who I would say she knows her lane. Yes. And she has been very clear that she does not teach in churches where there's men audiences. Now, on occasion, sure, we've had testimonies and this, that, and the other. Sure. Um, but in the main, Why has the role of a Christian male become so vilified?
1: Well, I'm going to use a phrase that is used as criticism of us and then make it positive. I believe we should be using the phrase toxic masculinity. I know that's people who are opposed to noble manhood using that to criticize us, but in the same way, the Methodists took, <laughs> took this word that was critical of them, Methodists, uh, and made it the name of their movement. I believe in toxic masculinity. Let me just break that down real quickly. Toxic masculinity, the word toxic, Comes from the Latin word toxicum. And what it meant was the poison that was put on arrows that were fired in warfare. That's specifically what toxicum refers to in the ancient world. So the Latin word referred to, we've all seen this in television, you dip an arrow in poison, you fire it. A man doesn't just suffer the wound of the penetration. Now there's poison circulating in his system. So I kind of like the fact that our enemies are accusing us of toxic masculinity because we have had toxic masculinity. If a man is unprincipled, undisciplined, living from his crotch, if he is vicious and using his words to destroy and not a responsible man in the home and on and on and on that he's firing poison arrows into his children, into his wife, into society. I like that image. I think that's one men can relate to. So When the left or the radical feminists criticize patriarchy, criticize toxic masculinity, they're identifying things that really did go wrong. And when I debate, as you do in universities and online and so on, on television, I believe in doing the martial arts thing. Let's yield as much ground as we can. Let's agree as much as we can. If somebody's accusing the church of having, at times, for example, changing the subject for a moment, been racist, yeah one of the code languages for the KKK in the South was the men's softball league. You know what I mean? So, yeah, let's just acknowledge that. Why argue about stuff that's true? But the problem is, of course, that this becomes a blambasting of all Christian manhood. So, I think we should acknowledge what we have to acknowledge, acknowledge the accusations that are correct. But then now in our time, I'm very excited about the noble men's movement I see rising up where men are saying, yeah, we've been idiots. We've been idiots. And there's been a whole generation of men, especially since the, sexual revolution of the sixties who have just been toxic idiots, but we're turning that now. And in every book I've, I've, written three books for men and every single one, I address women for a paragraph or two and say, Hey, don't be nervous. You're going to like this mm-hmm. when we're done here, when we're done with the man that you are yeah. you know, in love with or dating or whatever, you're going to like what you see coming in his life, because this is the answer. Toxic masculinity is the curse. Noble masculinity is its
0: cure. In Ephesians 5, which of course is directed to marriage, the instruction Paul gives to wives and husbands, I've always been struck by the way we count and enumerate verses. Only three verses to the woman, to the wife, and then verse 25 all the way to 33 is about the husband. Yes. And this is where, and on my earlier comment, uh, the husband is a leader, a headship is not his role. It says, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I stopped right there. You don't have to read the rest. Well, you need to. But he did not lord it over her. He did not hang on the cross and say, God, condemn these people for what they've done to me. Don't forgive them. He assumed the guilt and the blame, the punishment, and died. So my first charter as a Christian husband is to put Cindy first and give myself up for her. Yeah. That's contra to the way headship is typically discussed and viewed.
1: Exactly. And that's why I don't mind talking about male leadership if this is the acid test for taking that role. Right. My wife, and you know, Bev, very well, my wife has never had to sort of choose to submit to me in a big dramatic right. moment of, you know, ripping the carpet up and You're having, smarter to, than that. having to, Yes, exactly. <laughs> having to be drug into a decision. I trust, and I'm not complimenting myself. I trust that by the way I lead and love her, that she knows I have nothing but her well-being in my sights and that I'm trying to lead her not only deeper in Jesus, but lead her in the things of this world uh, and things of our lives. And she's delighted. In other words, I like to use, even though it's not a direct translation of the Greek in Ephesians 5, I use the phrase guardian coach. Bev feels my guardian, coached role in her life. I care for her. I protect her. I open the car door every time we get in the, the thing. I'm speaking to her about any bitterness I sense rising in her soul. We're working. We're helping each other with our weight. All of those things. I'm constantly investing her because I believe that's what Jesus did with us. The reason I'm saying all of that is again not to compliment myself, but to say so it's
0: an acknowledgement of what we're trying to do. Exactly. And yeah.
1: So my wife, who would not be bothered at all if she heard me on the air saying she's a strong personality, she's He's delighted. And yeah. the way that you and I would be delighted if we were in a sport, we had an amazing coach who worked us hard, but only meant our good and our success. We'd be delighted to say we probably have in our times past submitted to mentors and coaches. The way I submitted to my football coaches in extreme ways, because I wanted to play pro football. So all of that to say that the whole issue of submission is kind of a sideshow to what's really going on in the New Testament when it comes to men and the fact that they're meant to lay down their lives as Christ laid down his life for the church. And, and if you do that, I don't know of a woman who's saying, well, man, he lays down his life for me as Christ laid down his life for the church, but I don't want to follow him. I don't know of any woman who's doing that. Most women are saying, I'd give anything for that kind of self-surrender in my behalf.
0: Well, a couple of things. You and I run in an area where we talk to younger women who are not married yes. and their number one complaint, there's no men who are godly leaders. Yes, and they're delayed adolescence. They maybe don't have a good father model, a father wound, et cetera. But women are outstripping men in graduate degrees, in advanced degrees, in medicine, and so forth. It's fascinating to watch how the women, in spite of men's failures, are eclipsing. But back to your comment about a guardian and coach, I love this phrase in here. He says, nourish and cherish her. Yes. I don't do it perfectly, but I do work very hard to cherish Cindy. And she will tell you to the point of annoyance. I ask her every day, what's your day hold? Yeah. Not for a, you know, what are you doing today? But can I help you somehow? Do I need to coordinate with you? you know, it's 42 years of marriage. And there's a part of her that she might be annoyed sometimes. I don't know what I'm doing today. Honey, I just want to help you. Yeah. I just want to know. And with along with Beb, Cindy's a very strong personality. Yes. But she would also tell you, sitting here, the Two or three times Michael has said no to something, Yeah, have not been that big a deal, and in the end, and she would say this, she said it publicly for years, he was right. Yes. But you don't play that trump card
1: unless no. you're
0: very sure before God and your family that, you no, know, this is for our family and our system what we're going to do.
1: Well, and and Michael, you're not fundamentally insecure, so you aren't needing to have her agree with you so that you feel somehow affirmed emotionally, and that's a lot of the key. A man's got to know who he is. He's got to be solid. He's got to be centered on Jesus. He's got to be whole in his soul, and the issue of being right or leading in a certain direction he's asking her to follow isn't a matter of some affirmation of some hole in his soul or some filling of a hole in his soul. It's a matter of doing the right thing to the glory of God and for the good of his wife. My point is that when men are demanding things of their wives and demanding followership to their lack of leadership, the women sense that this is a desire on their part to do something out of some unwholeness or fix something on the inside or, you know, it's, it's about you. It's not about me, they often say to their husbands when I used to do marital counseling. So I think that the reason that your sweet wife is willing to follow you and get up publicly and say he was right is because she knew that you were leading wisely the best you could. And by the way, it wasn't fixing something in your life. It wasn't some salve, right. salve of a right. wounded your soul
0: when we talk about women and i don't mean to uh, characterize the feminist anger too broadly but men are afraid of that Stephen. yeah and so when you have a strong vocal woman who speaks you know hard things men become passive yes men already have a lot of insecurities and they become passive if their wife or a co-worker is you know difficult and their worldview, their culture is like this person's mad, she's angry, she's gonna play the sexism card, she's gonna call it, you know, whatever. Help that guy. Yeah. Because he's gotta have the courage to be a man. But as you mentioned before, what do we have in common here? Let's don't fight on the fact. But at the same time, it's a dicey place in culture. Yes. In corporate America, in the church.
1: Well, I'll tell you what's interesting, again, I don't wanna to talk too much about Bev and me. Bev, very lovely lady, but. Strong personality, and every so often, someone will say to me, Once she's left, or you know, maybe she's been into lunch, she, she leaves, and then a man will look at me and go, Oh man, you've you got a lot to deal with there. Now, Bev and I talk about this all the time, so I'm not talking behind her back. Oh, <laughs> no, I love this. And, and, and I'll look at him, and I, you know, frankly, I gotta tell you, it's not true, it's yeah. just not true. A strong person, she, it's just not true. We, we talk about this all the time. She is a team player, she loves yes. me, she's devoted to me, Obviously. she knows I'm devoted yeah. to if, her. If
0: they knew her, yeah. Well, yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. But my point is, what's happening is her strength is putting its finger, so to speak, in the insecurity in their soul. And they'll they'll often say, ooh, man, I couldn't handle that. Now, you know, Bev's a fox, beautiful woman, she's gifted, she's award-winning, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot to like about Bev at just an introductory level. But what's happened is this guy's had his own insecurities prompted in the course of an hour-long lunch, and he's turning to comfort me in what he thinks is my suffering. Couldn't be further from the truth. But what it makes me walk away doing is thinking, okay, I see I see why women, especially women who are called, gifted, you know, have things to accomplish in this world, they don't want to be with men who are insecure and tortured by well, well, their back strengths. Well, my point
0: about these young women exactly. who are single going, where are the godly men?
1: Yes. And part of that word godly means secure and strong. I mean, I've had a couple moments where I've had to say, honey, you're leaving the decision to me. I'm making it. We're going this way. Please come with me. I love you very much. And she will, well, and then even though we the... may have had a two-hour fight before. But, but you've also happen. got the capital...
0: Of experience and rear view mirror going, okay. And the same is true with Cindy. If she really wants to do something that I just don't like or support, if it's like a preferential thing just do it, honey. Just do it. Well,
1: and this is where I get into trouble a little bit, because I'll say to a room full of men, look, I get some of the complaints of the feminist movement. To the extent the feminist movement is attempting to claim for women the irresponsibilities of men through the years, to the extent that men have abandoned their responsibilities, and God helped the man who picks on the grandmother who ended up raising the children because the man abandoned the family. You you know this this story. I work very closely in the African-American community, and that is a curse in the African-American community right now. They will tell you that. Well, my point is, to the extent the feminist movement was, look, if we have to take the ball and run with it ourselves, we'll just do it. We men need to be saying, I'm sorry you had to. I understand that you did. Let me work with you to correct this kind of stuff. Now, there's radical feminism, which is rooted in everything from Marxism to stupidity, and I'm not making the sign of the cross over that. But I think good Christian men have got to recognize that some of feminism, some of its responses, is responses to the irresponsibilities of men and the foibles of men, the stupidity of men. If my husband spent all his days, you know, watching naked women dance around the pole and shoving 20s in their underwear, no wonder his home life's falling apart. No wonder she's saying, forget this. I'm not submitting to this idiot. I'm going to go on and do what I need to do. And I'm not saying that I'm celebrating that destruction of a marriage, but any wise leader's got to say, well, obviously that's what's going to happen in a situation of male irresponsibility like that.
0: You mentioned the African-American community. And, you know, I don't have the same engagement I once had in D.C. and really in Chicago, Very large uh, African American population. But the matriarchal home and church, you're right. Those grandmas have saved those lives. Thank God. But, you know, it's almost what's the course correction? I read a book years ago called Monday Voices about the Chicago tenements, basically Cabrini Green kind of thing. It's almost like that can't be fixed. Yeah. It's so broken.
1: But I see a movement of young African American men who want to fix it. As you know, I hate to bring it up because the record's so terrible this year, but I helped chaplain the Washington football team. And I've seen these great big muscular guys weep in Bible studies and in devotional times. I never knew my dad, my brother's in jail, but I'm going to do it differently. And I'm calling all of you to do it. And they call each other out and start hugging and start chatting and correcting each other. And there's a young movement, not just among professional athletes, but at the university level, I do things at Howard University, same thing. They may not be all that happy with white America right now in some cases, and I get that. But they certainly are saying, we're going to correct this fatherlessness. In the African American community. And many of those young men are working hard to be the kind of men they know they're supposed to be, turning to the church, actually asking for help and wanting to correct this course. Now, it's going to take a generation or two, obviously. You're talking about 60% fatherlessness in African
0: American families yeah. in America.
1: I mean, and that, I think that's low.
0: Well, yeah, D.C., last I read it was 66. So, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah I think that's low. Yeah, North is But it can be fixed. It can be fixed. And I think there's a serious attempt on the part of a lot of them to fix it.
0: What do we do in our sphere of influence because you know you have a platform, I have a platform. Not everybody has what they would consider a platform like, you know, somebody else. Right. How does the average, you know, hard working Christian man who, you know, tries to raise his kids to love the Lord and have a work ethic, et cetera, help that guy navigate everywhere he goes, he's on thin ice with women. Help him, Stephen. How do I navigate this work and so many women in the corporate world and you know corporate world better than me it's dog eat dog man it's vicious. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, for money, for raises, promotions, et cetera. How do you navigate that as a Christian without being a wallflower?
1: Well, I'll tell you what, I take a different tack than a lot of the teachers about manhood do. I believe that noble Christian manhood, done with character, done without bragging and without you know being too public about it, I think it's unbelievably attractive. I think it is what people want. I think it is the answer to a lot of these situations. I think even uh, radical feminists admire it. I've had many extreme feminists in debates and what have you, not so much point at me, but point to people in my tribe for sure, guys like you and me, guys who are not lording it over anybody, not beating their wives, aren't using manhood as an excuse to be irresponsible. And they'll say, well, if I had a man like you, I wouldn't be here now. I had a lesbian radical feminist say, you know, I got here because of a whole train of abuses by men men. Yeah. And if I hadn't had those things, I'm not sure I'd be here now. Now, they weren't criticizing where they were. They were just saying, don't hammer me. The because of events, yeah. So what yeah. I say to men is, look, be the quiet, strong, noble, solid man. Have a band of brothers around you to help you get through this because it's a lonely world out there. Correct each other. I teach them to have a free fire zone where anything that needs to be said can be said to make each other better. We'll address anything. We'll help you. We'll coach you. We'll all work together. But I believe you step into that corporate world, do a lot with military, sports, et cetera, be, just be, just radiate noble manhood, <laughs> just walk it out. It's novel to most people. They've never seen it before. I've literally had young men and women, and I'm please, I'm not painting myself as the exemplary male, but after I speak or after I lead some men to help some young men in a community, the women or young men will fall in my arms in tears, mm-hmm and say, not so much talking about me, but the group of men I've taken into a given situation. I've never seen this before. You see what I mean? So we're assuming that they're out there, they know who we really are, and they hate us. I don't know that that's true. I'm not sure they've really seen what Ephesians 5 just told us to be. So be it quietly, be it in strength, radiate it, live it out, bear the fruit of it. And I think favor will
0: come. I was, uh, when we lived in DC, of course, you know, it's high heels and, you know, suits and you don't touch, you don't hug, yeah. you don't side hug, Yeah. you know, you give a firm handshake. shake. Sure. I mean, it's a different economy there. And I remember holding a door, getting off the Metro and holding one of those doors that was, I mean, they're really, uh, not the turnstiles, but some of them are just really, the pistons are hard to hold them back, holding for this woman. Yes. And she gave me an expletive and yeah. a stink eye. Yeah. For holding the door for sure. her. I remember smiling going in full confession, I said, Well, you're welcome. <laughs> 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 but but you know, that's why I was raised. Yeah. I was raised at you, oh, me you too. know, me yeah. Too. And so the idea of nobility has to flex a bit from how we might presume being a noble man is, you know, picking up something heavy, opening a door. Exactly. You know?
1: Well, and I, I want to tell you that I think you should keep doing it.
0: I, I do. I, yeah, I, I'm no, just saying, but that's the reality well, right, of it. But you it, can do the best thing with the best intention. It's oh yeah, yeah. I've
1: held doors and have them say "f you" and yeah. you know, walk off and all that kind of thing. But I'm still. I'm going to do. I'm not going to do it again to that same person just to pick on them. If I have that opportunity, I would. Uh, yeah, I know you would. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Uh, but Would I, you open the
0: roof for me, please? Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> but I have a what in this generation is a bad habit of saying, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Well, sometimes I'm talking to a man and don't know it. Sometimes I'm talking to trans and don't know it. Sometimes I'm talking to a ma'am who wants to define their pronouns and their labels. You know what? I just blow all that off. Sorry, I admit no disrespect. In fact, I was trying to respect you. And I'll just move on and use their first name or whatever. But my point is I'm not going to apologize for exhibiting noble manhood. And I also am close enough because I've been in a lot of urban situations and work international overseas, I also know of a lot of women who have come out of radical feminism. And part of the reason they did was they saw men like you and they were ticked off about it initially. They would have said f you, they would have said whatever when you held the door, but something reached into their soul. They saw men serving, they saw men caring, they saw men helping. They saw men who weren't just trying to get in their pants but were trying to be noble men and protect them. I've actually stopped a woman from being beaten on the streets, and initially she wasn't sure what I was up to. All I did was step between her and an assailant because I'm, you know, bigger than the average bear. And I thought, "You better, are a big guy. Better me than the you know, whatever." I was there. I was 10 feet away. And it changed her. She said it changed her. And I'd never seen her since. But then the few months afterwards that we were still in contact, it changed her because she'd never been treated that way before. So I think this stuff reaches into people's souls. So I urge men, just be who you are and let it have the impact it's meant to have without you walking around with a
0: placard on you. What are some of the core things that would encourage a young man who's still navigating this? Maybe he's a little timid. Maybe he's insecure in his own manhood. Maybe his home system wasn't the best and a little, you know, it's complicated.
1: Well, one of the greatest statistics I know comes from a group of psychologists who said that the life of a fatherless young man Other men, other than the biological father, who step into that young man's life can make as much as an 80 to 85% difference that the father would have made. They can't completely replace the biological father had he been functioning in the home and noble, but they can get to about 85%. So one of the first things I tell young men is find good mentors. Get in a church, find a pastor, rally around a good, noble, godly coach, you know, whatever. Get some good mentors. Let
0: me interrupt for just a second, because... In the same vein, I encourage these guys, you've got to pursue a mentor. You don't want to be a pest, but you want to be persistent enough to get in front of him. Yes. Because most mentors, you and me included, I don't have the time. Right. If I mention my mentors in a sermon, I'll have young men come up to say, will you be my mentor? Yes. And I say, I can't. I've got a full plate. So what I encourage them is don't stop. Exactly. Don't be a nag. Right. But it takes courage for some guy. That's a big step, Stephen. If he's wounded already, he's insecure already, he knows he wants to grow, it's very scary to go up to a Stephen Mansfield and say, can you spend some time with me?
1: We have an image of mentoring. Many young men have an image of mentoring. It comes from the Greek world. We're all wrapped in toga, sitting under trees, while the wise, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, you know, dispenses wisdom. I'm saying- Wait, that's not what it is? It's not what it is. No, it's not (laughs) that. (laughs) <laughs> you idiot. Uh, yeah, exactly. But it's not what it is. But what it can be is you can be mentored by people who don't even know who you are. I'm mentored by folks who don't know who I am, but I pursued it. I get every book. I get every podcast. I get every tape. I do whatever I have to do. But
0: you and I are wired differently. I mean, because we do pursue. Yeah. We do read. We do. I mean, you and I are both similar in that that person is really good in X area. Right. I would learn a lot just reading what he wrote or watching his marriage or his kids. But everyone does that. When
1: I talk to a room full of young men and I say, look, you're all insecure. I'm talking to a bunch of 16 year old boys. You're talking to the king of insecurity at the age of 16, harsh military father. If you've seen the movie The Great Santini, you've seen my early life. So you guys are going to have to find older men, older brothers, older guys who will mentor you. And I don't think that means you're going to sit under a tree in the backyard wrapped in a toga. What that means is that you're going to learn from them. You're going to grow. I said, I've been known to track men down, dock them and say, I'll just give me a lunch. Yeah. I'll buy you a hamburger. Just give me one. I was so desperate and it began to change my life. And now I, in a sense, have many mentors and some of them are live and some of them aren't, but I kidnapped all of them.
0: I was talking to a gentleman who lives in our neighborhood. He's in his eighties and he owned some car dealerships in another state before they moved to Tennessee, quiet guy, unassuming guy. And boy was, I didn't see him coming. But his wife was telling stories on him and said, you know, my husband won't talk about this, but tell him a story about so-and-so. And so so anyway, they were interviewing some young men for the car dealerships he owned and the HR guy didn't like this guy and dismissed him. And the owner said, I want to talk to that young man, brought him in his office. And he said, I want to hire him. And the HR guy said, man, I don't, he goes, no, I want to hire him. Okay. It's your company. And he said, quote, I saw a twinkle in his eye, close quote. And he said to the young man, now, you need to wear some better clothes tomorrow. And he said, I don't have any. So he got him a uniform from the car dealership. Fast forward, this guy worked sweeping floors in the shops, worked his way up. Two or three years ago, he called this guy out of the blue. He's now a regional manager for a set of auto groups in another state. Wow. African-American man, married, intact family. And he said, Lewis, I want to thank you for giving me not only an opportunity, but a role model and a mentor yeah. of a godly man. And the guy came to Christ. Fantastic. You know, so it's back to that. You just don't know. Yes. I call yes. it imperceptible influence. You just don't know how you're going to affect one or two. I mean, I had three in my life that totally imprinted me huge.
1: Yeah. And that's me too. And let me say one other thing about mentoring, because I think it's really important for a lot of folks listening to this. Mentoring can also be modular, we have this idea yes. that, that I for Steve, a time. Yes. Let me use you and me as an example. I come to you. I want you to transform my whole life. Speak into everything. I am. Yeah. Oh, Dr. My, Ma- that's crazy, but I can come to you and say, look, I have a terrible devotional life or, you know, I saw you loving your daughter the other day and I saw the way you guys interact. Can I just buy yep. you a steak and you just teach me about that for maybe a couple of lunch sessions. And that's also what works. Go after what you need without <laughs> wanting to whole life transformation here. You know, I've, I've sat yeah. men down and said, You're better at investing than I am. Would you teach me about that? Totally. When I got in college and realized this concept, there was a guy who was, you know, not a snappy dresser as on television, but just a good looking guy who dressed well. Well, I was a jock who wore gym stuff all. I said, Would you just teach me a little bit? In 90 minutes, he had me rerouted. Yeah. That's all it takes. Uh, it's the way I learned to swing a bat. It's the way I learned to play racquetball. It's the way I learned to, you know, everything, tune an engine. I had somebody taught me in a couple of hours. So, my point is that for those listening, mentoring, is not going to someone and say, here's my life, transform me. It's just roar after what you need once you realize you need it. And for young men who know they need to be better men, find guys who can teach you what you need to know. I was the most insecure teenager on the planet. My father had been off at war twice by that time in my life. He loved me, but he was harsh. He was distant. He was busy. He was an intelligence officer during the Cold War, Russian linguist. He was the consummate Greenberry kind of guy, Kennedy era Greenberry. he loved me, but he was gone. I was overmothered, underfathered, and in a military jock context, where I was constantly being criticized. What got me out of that was getting saved, and then pursuing men who had what I needed, and that's what's brought me to this day. No question about it. Well,
0: you know, it's pretty simple, but those steps, I think, are just—they're overwhelming for a guy. Yes. How do you help a guy that doesn't see his need? That is the big challenge. And
1: here's the bottom line. I say to everybody everywhere willing for it to be as offensive as it might be, every man has a great need. Every man has a great need to step up in the area of manhood at every level. If I was talking to 500 yous, Michael Easley, in a room, I'd say the same thing. Not to put anybody down, but none of us are complete. So I just knock that in the head as hard as I can. Sir, the biggest idiot I know is a guy who doesn't think he needs to change or improve.
0: So in the front of my Bible, I have these little things glued in quotes and I had written a 30-page philosophy of ministry paper when I was in seminary, and I was so proud of it. It was like a third of the grade, and no one ever asked me, Michael, what's your philosophy of ministry? And so I was just chagrined. My first or second year out of seminary in the real life, I wrote these five points. Everybody needs a friend. Everybody is under-encouraged. Everybody is insecure. Everybody needs undivided attention, and lead but don't drive, and that's segues with what you're saying about insecurity. I'll never forget. I was in DC serving a church there and a, um, let's just say a more than two star general calls me on the phone, commanded billion dollar budgets. Mm -hmm. And he says, I've heard you talk about dating your wife. How do I do it? Yeah. Yeah. Number one, I applaud him. Kudos. Fantastic. Absolutely. that He had the courage to call me this lowly, puny, stupid pastor, but he saw in something in Cindy and me that he didn't see in his marriage. And so I said, okay, just what you do. Well, I kid you not, Stephen. like within two days, he called me back and says, well, I asked her for lunch and she said, no, <laughs> what do I do now? And I did not give him quarter. I said, wait a minute. How many people that say yes, sir, no, sir, to you every single day? So what you do is you get back on your horse and you say, well, honey, let's find another time. Uh, You just stay at it. Stay at it. Stay at it. But it was so striking. Here's a guy that for all intents and purposes had everything together, brilliant, successful, zenith of his career, and yet he was insecure pursuing his wife.
1: Well, here's something every man. Back to your point. We all have areas. No, you're exactly right. We all have areas. Well, in fact, I take it further than that. There is an area or at least one area in every man's life where he is stupid, where he's an idiot. The Greek word is, you know, idiotes, unlearned one. Where he is stupid now I'm here I am you and I fairly accomplished guys degrees and success and what have you there are areas of my life' I'm, oh, I'm, yeah. I've, I've had yeah. I've had exposed to me I'm talking about even technical areas and you know I'm right now selling some real estate and I'm going God, I don't know anything about this you know your, your wife's a It's professional. a dangerous thing yes yes <laughs> and so here I am in my early 60s fairly accomplished and yet I'm realizing there's an area in which I'm completely a stupid an idiot so my point is that once we accept that then we start plugging into to each other, connecting to each other like puzzle pieces in the areas where we can enhance each other's weaknesses. And so once a guy gets that kind, it's really a function of humility. Right. Humility oh, is yeah. basically, so i got some things, I don't have everything. And once we start doing that, then we start plugging into people where we can help each other. And that to me is the basis of a band of brothers. Then what you got to do is get down to that raw level where I'm not waiting to be invited into yeah. your life. You've said to
0: me, say to me whatever I need to be better. And I will.
1: And then I'll stick with you
0: and coach One you. One of my friends now, uh, 38, close to 40 years now, I've quoted him often, Dave Gibson. He'll say to me easily, I don't know if you need a dope slap or encouragement. I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> and vice versa. Yes. He's that guy who would come to me and smell something or sniff something and tell me. And uh, I've got, you know, you and I have a host of these. And it's funny, when I tell these stories, not unlike when you share these stories, people are astonished yes jealous longing i've got a friend george bokorny 54 years we've known each other third grade it's insane and i can call george and we pick up right where we left off yes and vice versa and he's had some stupid times in his life and i in my life and there's never been a more faithful friend and i go i long for guys to have that band of brothers yes And yet there's that insecurity or inability to start. They're afraid. They're afraid of rejection. Or they're, they're, you know, a six-pack of beer and, you know, the SEC is all they need. Yes, that's right. You know, Michael,
1: you and I, I don't want to say who this was, you and I saw someone we both love dearly and admire greatly. And everybody listening would know this person's name almost burned their house down when we were at his house. And I don't bring that up to pick on him. I bring it up to say, highly accomplished. We love him dearly, devoted to him. Almost burned his dang house down. Every man right now has got some dynamic in his life. You almost
0: burned your house down.
1: (laughs) Where you can burn your house down. And by the way, it was other folks who rescued him from that, right? Other folks went and got the stuff to put the fire out. My point's not to pick on him. My point's to say, that's all of us as accomplished and gifted as you are, there are some weakness in your life. There's some area where you are are that idiote, said in the Greek, I am as well. We can destroy our lives if we allow that to dominate us at a given moment. Every man needs to know it. It's why we need each other. It's why we need Jesus. And it's certainly why we need And this may be me selling books here a little bit, but it's certainly why we need the body of literature and teaching and counsel in the field of Christian manhood that can help us gain a vision for what we're meant to be and thus draw men around us to help us become
0: it. I want to land with that. It's a great statement, but I have to ask you, give me a couple of minutes on Kurds because you've been involved with the Kurds and the role of manhood and identity over there. How different? How similar? Well,
1: I got to tell you, the Kurdish manhood is something to behold. Now, it's not Christian. They're 99% Muslim, and I love my Kurdish friends, and they love the fact that I'm so open about being a Christian amongst them. But the honor culture, the warrior culture, everybody, male and female, is taught to shoot, then shoot on one leg, then shoot on the other leg, then shoot hanging from a tree. This is how they learn to be gorillas in the mountains. Unbelievable. I was over there. I'd been there maybe a month max Gunfire broke out, three Kurds jumped on me to protect me and take bullets for me. I'm so big it took three Kurds to cover my body. The level of honor, the level of welcome, the level of hospitality, the way they bond as men. I gotta tell you, it's what's kept Kurds alive. They're the largest people group in the world without their own homeland, 35 to 40 million of them. And what propels them forward? is a kind of noble warrior manhood that they're willing to bring others into who are committed to them, it changed me. I went to bed one, I don't mind telling you, in my hotel, I didn't stay in their homestead because I wanted to keep a little distance, and I wept because I had been welcomed into a bond of men amongst Muslims I'd only known for a few months that I did not have amongst Christian men. I'm not criticizing all Christian men. I'm saying it was my fault. Right. I didn't have well, it. I didn't have it. And it's hard to find in some places, as you know, in some Christian places. So, my work amongst the Kurds has been an honor, championing them as an oppressed people. But I got to tell you, they've changed me, and they've changed me in that area of manhood. Their generosity, their hospitality, their noble manhood, their simple questions turning to me and go, Why would a man do that? Dr. Stephen, why would a man do this? I don't understand it's so simple for them. This is a man. This is what a man does. You're honorable. Why isn't he honorable? It's just, it just the simple questions, almost childlike questions in a sense, although I'm not putting them down, just challenged me and made me realize, man, we are a field in the West. So they've really changed me and I'm delighted and honored to be one of their champions.
0: The last story you share with me on a couple occasions, I've heard it one-on-one then in a group when you've talked about um, your uh, rooftop experience when they found out you had a son.
1: I was in Damascus, Syria, back before the current civil war years ago. I was trying to get into Iraq, and papers got messed up. I couldn't get in. I was being hosted by a Syrian parliamentarian. A friend of mine, whose name I won't mention for obvious reasons. I'd been in my hotel for two weeks. He felt badly about his American friend. He decided to pull together some of his parliamentarian and official buddies who were up there on the rooftop with their bodyguards and so on. They were trying to figure out how to relate to me. They wanted to honor their American friend. Finally, one of them turned to me and said, Stephen, do you have a son? I said, I do what is his name? I said, Jonathan. Then you have a new name, he said, like he was announcing the second coming. And apparently in Arab culture, when a man has a son, it's such an honored thing. It's such a precious thing that they give him an honorary name. It's Abu, which means father of, and a shortened version of the son's name. He clapped his hands like I'm going to do now. Your name is Abu John. My son's name is Jonathan. When that was announced, they decided to celebrate like he'd been born yesterday. All of a sudden, food shows up. Dancing begins. I find myself dancing with hairy men carrying Uzis. You know, then they start doing that Arab thing of firing in the air. I don't air. need
0: that picture. Oh I, I,
1: my <laughs> gosh, it's unbelievable! So they start firing in the air. So it's like, you know, you know, and we danced and partied and ate. And by the way, they're Muslim. They don't drink alcohol. It wasn't that kind of partying. It was just manly dancing, celebrating, eating too much. Everybody's hugging me ninety-two different times. Finally, at four in the morning, they backslapped me back to my hotel. But they had celebrated me as a man. And here's the thing that uh, I really want to bring out. This was the first time in my life. I was in my mid-30s. It's the first time in my life I had ever been celebrated in any phase as a man. Wow. I mean, just think about it. Typical Protestants, what do we do? We, guy, you know, We don't do anything at 13 like our Jewish friends with the bar mitzvah. Guy goes off, the guy graduates high school, we give him a gift. There's no manly ceremony. There's no manly ceremony to graduating college. There's not much even a manly ceremony about getting married or having the first child. So having had two children, and my son, by the way, at that point was you know eight, and he'd been around for a long time, but these men, these Muslim men with whom I could barely converse, celebrated me as a man and welcomed me to fatherhood, and it broke me. It just changed me, and I came back and I realized we are a ritual-less yeah. society, and even in the church. And This is why I am urge Christian men, do the Christian version of the bar mitzvah, for your 13-year-old son, welcome him into adolescence, do a manly thing when he graduates high school, do some kind of a manly affirmation when he graduates college, certainly do it before he gets married. My, the only thing I ever had said to me was by my future father-in-law, and he was a West Texas guy, and he said, well, here's my great wisdom, women don't mix. That's all he said. I still don't know what it means. Well, but my, it but my point is, that's that was the great manly wisdom. That was the blessing. On. That yeah. was the
0: blessing. Dennis Swanberg, that was uh, the blessing.
1: Exactly. So how do, we, how do we do that? How do we affirm at every level? How do we affirm when a man retires and steps into that new phase? How do we affirm and how do we bless when a man's preparing for death? I mean, on and on. There should be manly rituals that mark our lives. And the only one I'd ever had at that point was years in by a bunch of men I could barely communicate with who were lacing the celebration with Allah Akbar in a non-threatening way. They were just celebrating God in that evening. And uh, it's changed me.
0: Stephen Mansfield will have all of his books and information in the show notes. You need to pick one and and you'll benefit from it. Thanks friend, thanks for coming to the studio. Man, and great to be with you. An honor and um, we look forward to how God continues to use you. I'm proud of you, Michael. Thank you so much. Mutual brother. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time
1: or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In
0: Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.